If you haven't already, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 15. What was Jesus actually like when he was on earth? What, what was it like to be around Jesus in the flesh? I think the first verse of Luke 15 gives us a good snapshot of what he was like. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Who was it that was drawn to Jesus? The tax collectors of that time weren't like the IRS. I mean, nobody likes the tax man. But the tax system in Rome didn't just have corruption, it was based on corruption. Rome would get its taxes by hiring private contractors to collect it, and they wouldn't pay them for those contracts so what would happen is these people would promise, I can get you at least this much tax revenue, and anything they collected on top of that was theirs to keep. Corruption wasn't just a bug in the system, it was a feature of it. And on top of that, it's not like they're collecting taxes for the Jewish government, this is for Rome, the occupier, the oppressor. Imagine what it would be like if Russia started taxing the regions of Ukraine that it controls. And on top of that, they use local Ukrainians to collect the taxes. You can imagine what their neighbors would think about them. And that starts to give us an idea of what the Jewish people thought about their countrymen collecting taxes for Rome. And then sinners were being drawn to Jesus too people who, for their moral failings, had been shunned and ostracized. They'd been cut off from normal relationships with their families and with the rest of the community. These were not people who made a habit of following preachers around. And yet there was something about Jesus that drew them to him. One of my favorite authors wrote a series of plays on the life of Christ. And I want to read two short passages from them because I think she does a really great job of capturing that irresistible draw to Jesus that sinners had. In it, she has a tax collector say, I won't forget the first sight of him. I was a tax collector. You know what to think about that. I can see it in your face. Well, when he came down to our street the other day, I don't mind telling you, I had a pretty good morning. I was patting myself on the back, thinking how I'd managed to put the screw to some farmers. And I looked up, and there he was. I thought, here's the prophet. I suppose he'll start calling me names like the rest of them. Let him. Hard words break no bones. So I looked up and stared at him. And he stared at me. It seemed as though his eyes were going straight through me and through my ledgers. I started shuffling my feet. And he smiled. You know the way he smiles all of a sudden sometimes. And he says, follow me. 
I couldn't believe my ears. I tumbled out of my desk, and away he went up the street, and I went after him. I could hear people laughing. Someone spat on me. I didn't seem to care. When he got to my house, he stopped and waited for me. And I, I said, will you come in? Yes, please. And I said, I, I, I'd ask you to dine with us, but you might not like our company. Why not? Look, this isn't a fit place for you. You know the way I make my living. Yes, I know. It doesn't matter. And the way he said it made me feel more ashamed than if he had started telling me off. So he came in and he sat down with his disciples and nobody seemed surprised except me. She also has a young woman say later in the play, there was so much to enjoy. I loved the beauty of the world. I loved the lights and the laughter, the jewels and the perfumes and the gold and the applause of people when I danced. I loved the wrong things in the wrong way until I found something better. My companions and I went there that day to mock him. We thought he would be sour and grim, hating all beauty and treating life like an enemy. But when I saw him, I was amazed. He was the only person there who was really alive. The rest of us were going about half dead, making the gestures of life, pretending to be real people. The life was not with us, but with him. Intense and shining like the strong sun when it rises and turns the flames of our candles to pale smoke. And I wept and was ashamed. But when he spoke to me, I felt the flame of the sun in my heart. I came alive for the first time, and I love life all the more since I have learned its meaning. These were not the sort of people who followed preachers around. To the scribes and Pharisees, what was much more important was the fact that these were not the sort of people that preachers wanted following them around. And yet they were drawn to Christ. And what was more shocking was he accepted them and welcomed them to follow him. The scribes and Pharisees are standing there watching this as the people that they see as the dregs of society are flocking to Jesus. And he's not cursing them, deriding them, driving them away from him. He tells them to follow him. He's telling them to, to sit and eat with him. Who does he think he is? What does he think he's doing? And Jesus knows what they're grumbling about. And so he turns to the scribes and the Pharisees that day. And he tells them a series of parables. Go ahead and look down at verse 3 of chapter 15. So he told this parable. Again, this is directed to the scribes and Pharisees. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. 
And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The main part of these stories would have made sense to the scribes and Pharisees. They might not have known where he was going with all this, but they probably would have found themselves nodding along at first. I mean, sheep provide wool and meat for the shepherds. It's the shepherd's livelihood. Those coins were all the money that woman had in the world. Of course she's going to look for them. You would put a fair amount of effort into finding those things if you lost them because they had value. As long as you ignore that uncomfortable ending about there being more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous, it makes sense. Those things have value and they're lost. It's easy to see the lost value in commodities, though. It's easy to understand why you would put effort into finding lost cash. But is it that straightforward when people get lost? Because people know what they're doing when they get lost, usually. And a lot of times they hurt you on their way out the door. So Jesus has one more parable for the scribes and Pharisees. He tells them there was once a man who was wealthy. He had two young sons. He had everything going for him, it seemed. Wealth, sons to inherit that wealth, standing in the community. Then one day, his youngest son, who may have always had a bit of a tendency to buck the system, did the unthinkable. He came to dad and said, I'm done. I want my share of the inheritance and I'm gone. This was not the way it's supposed to work, right? You don't get your inheritance while the person's still alive. But he's saying, I see you as more of an ATM than a father and I'm tired of all the strings that come with the cash. I want what's mine. I don't care if you're alive or dead. And the truly shocking thing is the father does it. He doesn't tell his son off. He doesn't start yelling and cursing at him. He doesn't kick him out of the house and say good riddance. He divides up his property and he gives his younger son his share. So now that he's got his newfound wealth, he figures can't really enjoy it at home. So he travels to a far off country where he can live his best life. 
He's not always having to endure the dirty looks of his neighbors who know how he got his money. He can really live it up large. And he spends his money on the sorts of things that young men like him have always spent their money on. And shockingly, he blows through it all. At this point, you could probably hear a few murmurs of approval from the scribes and Pharisees, because this is what happens to a man like him. You reap what you sow. Then after he's made himself destitute, the land that he's in, far from home, experiences a severe, a severe famine. And a few smiles probably crack on the faces of the scribes and Pharisees, knowing that this rebellious young man is getting what's coming to him. This young man who moments before had been riding high on his spoils is so destitute and starving that he hires himself out to a pig farmer, and he's making so little doing this that he's watching the pigs eat, wishing he could get down and eat the slop with them. We used to raise pigs when I was a kid. The food you feed pigs is not appetizing. And he's so starving, he thinks that would be better than nothing. And at this point, the scribes and Pharisees probably have to restrain themselves from cheering out loud. This is what sinners get. This is what's supposed to happen. You sin like this, you rebel, you buck against the system, you get what you have coming to you. This is how the story is supposed to end. But it doesn't end there. In verse 17, the young man has a moment of clarity. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He knows he sinned against his father. He knows that by wishing his father dead, he's lost the right to consider himself a son. But he says, if I'm going to have to be a servant, better to serve a man like my father than my current master. And so he gets up, and he begins the long journey home. And you can imagine the anxiety building in him as each step brings him closer to that moment where he's going to have to come before his father. And the day finally comes when he knows he's going to reach home today. He's tired, and he's dusty, He's hungry, but all he can think about is, what is dad going to say? How is he going to respond? Is he going to take me up on my offer? Or is he going to tell me to go back to the pigs? How is he going to respond? Well, his father responds in verse 20 in a way that he could never have hoped for, even in his wildest dreams. 
He rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The young man stops dead in his tracks as he realizes this person flying towards him as his father. In that day and age, the head of the family did not run. Wealthy men did not run. Fathers who had been sinned against so egregiously by rebellious sons who now come waltzing home with their tail between their legs do not run. And yet his dad is running towards him. And when he gets to him, he wraps him in his arms the way he did when he was young. The young man starts to confess in verse 21. He says, The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But that's as far as he ever gets. His prepared speech about let me be a servant is drowned out by the outpouring of his father's love and forgiveness for him. His father will hear nothing to the contrary of the fact that he is his son. The father said to his servants, verse 22, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. There will be no talk of you not being my son. You are my son. You were dead but now are alive. You were lost but are found. The whole world will know that you are my son. You will wear my robe. You will wear my sandals and my ring. Symbols that you are mine. At this point, the scribes and Pharisees would have to pick their jaws up off the floor. But Jesus hasn't forgotten about them either. Because remember, the man had two sons. While the father was watching the road, waiting for his son to return, the eldest son was out working in the fields. And that day he finally drags himself home after a long, hard day. And as he comes up to the house, he hears the sound of music and dancing. You have to imagine, he already knew deep down what was going on, but he grabs one of the servants to find out what exactly it is. And his suspicions are confirmed. That no good, thieving brother of mine is back. Unbelievable. He blew through everything he had and now he's back. That's my robe he's wearing. That's my ring on his finger. Those are my sandals on his feet. That's my fattened calf that he's eating. Everything that's left is mine. And dad's just giving it all away to him. So the father has to come out of the house and entreat the older son to come in and join the feast. He's having none of it, though. He says, I have served you for years. I have never disobeyed you. You've never so much as given me a small goat for my troubles. But that son of yours does everything he does, and he can just waltz right back in here. 
The older brother exposes the fact that even though he never left his father's side, his heart was in a far-off country too. The younger brother had no need of dad, had no love for dad. He just saw him for what he could get out of him. The older brother had a different way of going about it, but he had the same attitude towards his father. And so while everyone else feasted inside the house, he stood adamantly on the outside and refused to go in. And the father extends to him the same patience and compassion that he showed on his younger son. He says, look, you know that everything I have is yours, but this is my son. He was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You are my son. Love the things that I love. Rejoice in the things that make me rejoice. Value the things that I value. And come in to the house and join the feast. And the parable ends there. We don't ever get a resolution. We don't find out if the elder brother goes into his father's house or if he stands there with his arms crossed on the outside looking in. Remember who it is Jesus is telling these parables to. You can imagine as he ends, he's looking at the scribes and the Pharisees with the same patience and compassion that the father in the parable shows with this look of, you tell me how the story ends. Is the elder brother going to come in? Or is he going to stay on the outside? We've all been both of these brothers at one time or another. And some of you may be younger brothers this morning. Some of you might feel like you are that younger brother. Maybe you're watching this morning and not here because you just felt like you couldn't bring yourself to come today. Maybe you're here this morning, but you've been sitting there the whole time thinking, I, I shouldn't be here. I don't, I, I, I don't really belong here today. Maybe this morning your sin has left you so broken and ashamed that you think you could never bring yourself to come home again. And you don't understand, I've messed up too big this time. Or it's been too many times, just over and over. I can't keep coming back and expecting the same forgiveness. I've had more than my fair share of chances. If that's you this morning, look and see what kind of heart God has for his children when they come to him in repentance. He doesn't stand there with his arms crossed, barring the door. He's waiting 
looking down the road, anxiously waiting for his children to repent so that he can bring them back into the house. Even more than that, think about this. What's the main difference between the first two parables and the parable of the two sons? No one came to look for the younger son. The shepherd went and looked for the lost sheep. The woman searched her house for the lost coin. No one went after the younger brother. The elder brother should have gone after his brother, but he didn't. But our elder brother isn't like that. We have an elder brother in Christ who left his father's house, who traveled to the far-off country and got into the pigsty with the mud and the dung and brought us out and washed us and gave us his robe and brought us back into the father's house to join the feast. If this morning you're feeling like you've strayed too far, that you can't get out of the mess that you've made, that you could never be accepted if you came back, remember what kind of father we have and what kind of elder brother we have and enter into the joy of your father's house. And some of us this morning, maybe elder brothers, and that one can be much more insidious because there are so many ways that that can creep into our way of thinking and because the elder brother thinks that if I'm doing everything right, then everything must be all right. Again, there are countless ways we can have an elder brother heart towards those around us. Countless opportunities for us to look at others in their distress and say with a shrug of our shoulders and zero grace in our hearts, you reap what you sow. What did you expect? When a brother or sister in Christ experiences the natural consequences of a sin, how do we respond? Do we think, what did they think was going to happen? What do you expect? Or does your heart break as you fervently pray that they would come home to the Father, that they would come to their senses like the young man? When you read another story of another 17-year-old who's shot and killed in the city, do you think, that's what happens when you join a gang? Or does your heart break at the fact that that's one more lost lamb that won't be brought back into the fold? There are so many ways that that elder brother heart can creep in and affect the way we see those around us. So rather than get lost in a long laundry list of all the different ways that could happen, I want us to look at the alternative instead. We saw at the beginning that the tax collectors and sinners were being drawn to Jesus. So my question for us this morning is, are we like our elder brother? 
our tax collectors and sinners, those who have hurt us, those who the world says we should have nothing to do with, are they drawn to us by some irresistible, sometimes unimaginable way? Or are we the ones who make them feel like outcasts? And altogether, this past week on Wednesday, we read together an article written by a pastor in Portland whose church offices were attacked by a mob. And they sustained some fairly significant property damage. The mob was angry because the church rented office space to a crisis pregnancy center, and they were upset about the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And the pastor described the aftermath like this. He said, we love our city and our neighborhood because Jesus loved us and loves them too. Our neighbors sense this, even if they don't understand it. Why else would several of them show up late that night to offer help, wood, and tools as we boarded up the broken windows? Their distress at our trouble and readiness to help us wasn't because they agree with us, but it could be because they've seen our good works and so give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Especially in our tumultuous political times, the world says that church's neighbors should want nothing to do with them. They're on the wrong side. They're different. They're the outcasts. Don't fraternize with them. And yet because of the love and the grace that that church has shown to their community in the past, and the love and the grace that they continue to show, even as they're physically attacked, draws their neighbors to them. Are people drawn to us? Are those who have sinned against us and hurt us drawn to us? Or do we tell them, you, you should stay where you're at in the pigsty? Are we like our elder brother, or are we like the elder brother in the story? If we are like the elder brother in the story, what are we supposed to do? Well, we saw that his heart was the same as his younger brother's heart. And so the solution is the same too. It's not about doing something better, which is our usual go-to as elder brothers. The answer isn't to do more. The answer isn't to do better. The answer is to enter into the Father's house. The younger brother found himself on the outside looking in And all he could do is say, Father, I have sinned against you. And enter. So if you're feeling like an elder brother this morning, just say with the younger brother, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And enter into the Father's house. Join the feast that he has prepared for you. And draw others to enjoy that feast with you. whether you're a younger brother who's well aware of your sins 
Or an elder brother who thinks that God must accept me. Look how great I am. If you're on the outside looking in, the answer is the same. Let his love and his grace drown out any protests of your shame or your self-righteousness and enter into your father's house. Join the feast of love and grace that he has prepared for his children. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you do welcome your repenting children with open arms because we would all be lost without that. Lord, we have all sinned against you. We do not deserve to be called your sons and daughters. But that is what you've made us. And so we can boldly approach your throne as we sang earlier. Because you will hear no protest that we are not your children. You have made us your children and no one can change that. Father, I thank you that we have an elder brother who came to find us when we were lost. And we rejoice now that we are found. We pray this in your name. Amen.